What makes a life a good one? Is it the adventure you have? Or the friends you find along the way? Maybe it's pursuing your passion while striving to protect, defend, and save what you believe in every single day. So what makes a life a good one? In the Coast Guard, we think it's all of the above and more. But you'll have to find out for yourself. Visit GoCoastGuard.com to learn more. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can spend another weekend doing the same old whatever, or I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. With available H-Track all-wheel drive and three-row seating, my whole family can head deep into the wild. Conquer the weekend in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. I don't know if you caught the Washington Post headline this morning. Trump raises $495 million since mid-October, including a massive haul. This is all part of the headline. Including a massive haul fueled by misleading appeals about election. End of quote. And he's raised $140 million since he lost the election. Since the first week of November. $140 million. It's mind-boggling. And then there's a headline over at Raw Story that reads, A mysterious company created nine months ago is the RNC's highest paid vendor of the 2020 election. Nobody knows who owns this company. It's a Delaware corporation. It started, you know, uh, Delaware allows people to basically hide who they are. Nobody knows who owns it. Nobody knows who started it. Nobody knows what it does. Nobody knows where its money goes. But the RNC paid it $49 million dollars. I mean, it's just it's like the grift is you've got Trump raising twice as much for his inaugural as Obama did. Or Obama actually had inaugural balls all over Washington, D.C. Louise and I and Alan Ratner went to one of them. But uh, Trump didn't do that. He had some celebrations, but he did everything on the cheap. And the one thing he did that was real expensive was at the Trump Hotel, where apparently he massively inflated the prices. This is something that they're investigating Ivanka over right now. But where did the rest of the money go? I mean, that was like 100 million bucks. You know, Donald Trump, we know that he's $400 million in debt for money that he has personally guaranteed to banks. We know that he's over a billion dollars in debt total. But if he can keep on raking in $140 million a month and his only expense to do it is sending out emails, which are essentially free, and paying 25% of it to the RNC. I tweeted last night a link to you know Trump's latest little fundraising pitch. Save Georgia! And then you scroll down to the fine print, and the fine print says 75% of this money goes to Donald Trump's new PAC that he can do anything he wants with and takes his money with it. I mean, it doesn't literally say that, but you can. it's right there. It names his PAC, and 25% goes to the RNC. It's amazing. And now we find out that Elliot Broidy, who headed up fundraising for the Trump campaign early on, and 
this guy, Abby, who is Jared Kushner's personal lawyer, Jared Kushner's lawyer and Donald Trump's fundraiser together were apparently, this is this, it looks like this is going to be the charge, conspiring to bribe Donald Trump in order to get a pardon for a guy. And, and the only reason the thing f- fell apart was the intermediary, this guy Diller, who was a, a billionaire, died in the middle of the process. And so there was no money to be given to Donald Trump. But the way it was going to be done was he was going to make a political campaign contribution to the pack of Trump's choice, which of course would be the Donald Trump pack, the one that all these poor suckers who are giving money every, literally every day. I mean, I'm getting, I'm down to, now they're down to six or seven emails a day. You know, at, at its peak a couple of weeks ago, it was 15 emails a day coming out of Trump from Mike Pence, from Donald Trump, from Ivanka. Actually, Ivanka is the one person I've never gotten an email from asking for money. But uh, Don Jr., Eric, Mike Pence, I even got one from Mike Lindell. In fact, I got two of them. The My Pillow guy asking for money from Donald Trump's super PAC. I mean, these guys have a grift going that is just like mind-boggling. And the thing is, the RNC is taking 25% of it. So the question that I lay before you is, what's this going to do to the Republican Party? In my opinion, and I've been saying this for the 17, 18 years I've been doing this show, the Republican Party is one long con, or at least has been since 1980, arguably since 68 with Nixon's Southern strategy, but really in a just nobody's even pretending otherwise way since 1980. So uh, anyhow, I just I just wanted to lay that out and, and share it with you. And let's pick up your phone calls here. Rhonda in Atlanta. Hey, Rhonda, what's up? Hello, Mr. Hartman. I had so many things to talk about, but I know we have to stick to one. This was in regards to the electronic ballots. And I'm I'm in Atlanta, so we got a lot of ballots thrown out in 2016s and prior years. However, now that we're doing mail-in ballots and people are doing a lot of mail-in ballots, which is, I think, more secure, Mm. it's interesting how they're screaming about fraud. The Republicans yeah. are screaming about. Well, this is going to be their next big thing. They're going to start challenging signatures on ballots, and that's going to be the way that they reject ballots from uh, principally areas that they know have a lot of Democratic voters, uh, particularly areas that are largely African American. They are constantly reinventing mm-hmm. new ways to disenfranchise people. This is going to be their new strategy. I promise you, Rhonda, going forward. Well, thank you, Mr. Hartman, for sharing that. And I do. I'm going to call again next month because I have something else cool to share. Okay, you can call once a week, but did did I interrupt you? Did did you get your whole thought out there? Uh, Yes, and in reference to that, yes, I did. Um, I just, I mean, I guess we're exhausted here in Georgia. I mean, like how much more this is going to take place, you know? I mean, can they really do Mm -hmm. this? Can they really just take the election like that? Sadly... The Supreme Court ruled in 2001 in the Bush v. Gore case that we do not have a constitutional right to vote for president. And even though the phrase right to vote appears three different times in three different amendments in the U.S. Constitution, the Supreme Court, a a conservative majority on the Supreme Court, exclusively, none of the the Democratic appointees on the court voted for this. It was a five to four decision. 
uh, the, 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 you know, the five conservatives on the Supreme Court in 2001 ruled that. And so the states have just been free to disenfranchise people, throw away your votes, throw away your registration. In Georgia, Raffs and Perger, uh, you know, they, they threw 200,000 people Tom off the voting rolls. Visit TomHartman.com for audio and video archives. Rhonda, thanks for the call, and I look forward to your next one. We'll be right back. Brian in Middletown, New Jersey. Hey, Brian, what's up? Oh, good afternoon, Tom. Uh, I just wanted to talk about the election. You know, as, as euphoric as I felt after Biden won, I started to think, and I said, you know, if we switched about 60,000 votes, Arizona, Georgia, and Wisconsin, Trump would have lost the popular vote by 5 million plus, but won the Electoral College by one vote. And I remember somebody actually wrote of that possibility about a year or two ago in the mm-hmm. New York Times, but it really makes me wonder what kind of country am I living in that over 70 million people want more of what we've lived through in the last four years? I mean, this is uh, the GOP is a party of, I call it the Social Darwinist Party. I mean, they don't really care, you know, Medicare, Medicaid, unemployment insurance, things that benefit the vast majority of people, Affordable Care Act. But there are people who don't see the value in that and are willing to, to say, give me more of kids in cages, give me more of mismanaged trump demic. I want more of that. I just don't, I don't get it. I I'm, I'm, I'm probably feel uh, worse about being in the country now than I did in 2016 because I thought it was so obvious how bad this guy was. Yeah. I get where you're coming from, Brian. And what we're seeing right now, in my opinion, is a testimonial to the power of 1,500 radio stations across this country, um, you know, just saturating, soaking the nation literally from border to border. There's not a nook or cranny in this country where where Americans are not saturated with the spittle of these right-wing hate radio hosts. And then Facebook tweaking their algorithm to really promote, you know, uh, uh, Nazism, essentially. And, and, And then, you know, what we've got in the White House and Fox News. And, you know, I think a lot of these people, a lot of those folks are not terrible people, but a lot of them actually are, sadly. And uh, it's just, it's sad. I share your concerns, Brian. I don't have an easy answer. You're listening to the the Tom Hartman Program. Other than saying once again to Tom Steyer and his peers, you know, why don't you buy one of the big radio networks? We'll be back. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Our book today is The Embattled Vote in America from the Founding to the Present by Alan J. Lichtman. This is from the introduction titled Voters and Non-Voters. On February 18, 1965, advocates for the voting rights of disenfranchised African Americans ordered a rare nighttime march in the small town of Marion, Alabama, part of the state's Black Belt, to protest the jailing of James Orange. Prosecutors had charged Orange with contributing to the delinquency of minors after he enlisted students in voter registration drives. Alabama state troopers responded to the protest by beating peaceful demonstrators with billy clubs and sending terrified marchers fleeing into the night. Some sought refuge from police violence in a nearby restaurant, Max Cafe. State troopers followed them into the establishment, however, and one of those troopers, James Bonnard Fowler, fatally shot an unarmed 26-year-old black voting rights worker, Jimmy Lee Jackson. Insisting that Jackson had reached for a gun, Fowler claimed self-defense. Eyewitnesses told a very different story. They said that Jackson was trying to protect his mother from police violence and that Fowler shot him deliberately and without provocation. While Jackson languished in a hospital for eight days before dying from his wound, Alabama officials issued a warrant for his arrest 
for the assault of a police officer. They did not arrest, indict, or discipline Fowler, or even release his name to the public. Fowler remained on the state police force, and a year later he shot and killed another unarmed black man, Nathan Johnson Jr., during an altercation at the Alabaster City Jail. State police officials were quick to purge both killings from Fowler's personnel file, but fired him in 1968 for assaulting his white police supervisor. In 2007, as part of a federal state effort to reopen cold cases from the civil rights era, Alabama prosecutors indicted the 73-year-old Fowler for murder. Two weeks before trial was set to begin in 2010, Fowler pleaded guilty to manslaughter and served five months of a six-month sentence. Fowler died in 2015, 50 years after killing Jimmy Lee Jackson. Americans were dying for the vote more than 175 years after the nation's founding because the framers made a consequential mistake when they drafted the Constitution and the Bill of Rights, the Constitution's first ten amendments. They failed to enshrine in these pivotal documents of our democracy the right to vote, not just for men or even only white men, but for any American. Among many enumerated rights that the government cannot abridge, the right to vote remained conspicuously absent and remains so to this day. All subsequent amendments protecting the voting rights of racial minorities, women and young people, the 15th Amendment on race, the 19th Amendment on sex, 26th Amendment on age, are framed negatively, stipulating not what the states must do to ensure people's voting rights in America's democratic republic, but what they cannot do. Jimmy Lee Jackson died, one could plausibly argue, because the political leaders who drafted these amendments perpetuated the framers' mistake of failing to establish an affirmative right to vote. Jackson died because white supremacists who controlled southern governments had circumvented the 15th Amendment's prohibition against denying the right to vote, quote, on account of race, color, or condition of previous servitude. They did so through patently discriminatory, although seemingly race-neutral, restrictions such as poll taxes and literacy tests. As the pioneers of modern democracy, the founders understood that the right to vote grounds all other rights, that it empowers Americans to become participants in government rather than mere petitioners. But it was their omission of voting rights that triggered a war over America's embattled vote that continues to rage in the halls of Congress and in the courtrooms of federal judges. Yet, as in Marion, Alabama, it has spilled into the streets, too, with life and death at stake and the ongoing struggle for people's right to consent in their governing. Opposition to voting rights for all Americans has revolved around three critical issues. Despite the revolutionary rallying cry of no taxation without representation for most of U.S. history, the American political leadership has considered suffrage not a natural right, but a privilege bestowed by government on a political community restricted by considerations of wealth, sex, race, residence, literacy, criminal conviction, and citizenship. The notion of privileged access to the vote survives into our own time, albeit in subtler forms than in the past. Since the early republic, proponents of a limited vote have waived the banner of voter fraud in earlier times to justify the disenfranchisement of supposedly corruptible people such as the propertyless workers, women, racial minorities, or immigrants. Today, it is the allegations of such forms of alleged election fraud as voter impersonation, repeat voting, voting by non-citizens, or balloting in the name of dead people that are used to justify restrictive measures like voter photo ID laws or draconian purges of registration rolls. Numerous studies have documented that such voter fraud is vanishingly small in recent elections, but the outcry continues as loudly as ever. 
Disputes over the vote have been intensely partisan, with principal justifications for voting restrictions functioning as thinly masked attempts to favor one party over another. From the end of Reconstruction through the early 20th century, for example, it was the lily-white Democratic Party that benefited politically from suppressing the African-American vote. In recent years, the partisan calculations have reversed, as African-Americans have become the most reliable of Democratic voters, and Republicans have come to depend on the white vote. The book, The Embattled Vote in America, by Alan J. Lichtman. Sometimes Louise and I just crave a restaurant-quality dinner at home without doing all the work or driving. Well, Cook Unity is the first chef-to-you service delivering locally sourced meals from award-winning chefs right to your door every week. And it appears to be less expensive than other delivery options. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. We just received our first meals from Cook Unity and what a huge difference it is to get the best chefs in the country to bring creative, delicious meals to us and you every week. Every meal is handcrafted by chefs and made in local micro kitchens, not large production facilities. We just had the chipotle maple glazed salmon with green beans and mango pico de gallo. It had everything we love in a meal. They have all sorts of options like vegan, paleo, pescatarian, gluten-free, and more. Menus are posted two weeks in advance so you have plenty of time to choose. Experience chef-quality meals every week delivered right to your door. Go to cookunity.com slash Hartman with two N's or enter the code Hartman with two N's before checking out for 50% off your first week. That's 50% off your first week by using the code Hartman or going to cookunity.com slash Hartman. That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. Welcome back. Tom Harmon here with you. On the line with us is our old buddy Greg Pallast. GregPallast.com is the website. The Twitter handle is Greg underscore Pallast, just like mine is Tom underscore Hartman. And Greg, first of all, I've gotten some emails from folks down in Georgia saying that there's been a lot of hysteria around the you must have a car to vote stuff. And that never made it. That was a proposal that you and I helped kill. And we need to make that clear that that is not the case, because that might discourage people who don't have cars from trying to vote. And that did not happen. One, they can never take away your registration or block you from registering because you don't have a car. It's illegal. And we're going to make sure this is done by legal action by the Andrew Goodman Foundation. But the key thing is, no, please register. Check to make sure you are registered in Georgia and register by December 7th. They were threatening. They had come up with a rule that if you don't have a car registered in Georgia, they could say you're not a Georgia resident, and they can just block your registration until you go to a hearing. Now, who's going to do that? And, of course you'll miss your chance to vote in the runoff. So we busted it open on the Tom Hartman show and a lot of the other groups in Georgia, and it looks like we've stabbed it in the heart. But we're going to make sure that it doesn't come back. We're taking legal action to knock it out. But we have other big news today, too, of course. Okay, so go for it. 
Okay, the big news today, Black Voters Matter. That's Latasha Brown, headed by Latasha Brown. Rainbow Push Coalition, Reverend Jesse Jackson, and the Transformative Justice Coalition, and so many of the frontline groups in Georgia today sued the Secretary of State to immediately return 198,000 voters that were illegally removed from the voter rolls. Now, Tom, you remember on this show I mentioned that the ACLU released a report by my team of experts saying that, you know, the state got it wrong. They said almost 200,000 people had moved from their homes, but they hadn't moved, including infamously, I was there when they kicked out Martin Luther King's 92-year-old cousin who had been voting in the same place for 50 years. They just threw out. Now, we just found out something else. How did they get it so wrong? The answer was they broke the law. They went to the post office, or they got a contractor who said that all these tens of thousands of people had put in change of address forms that they moved. The post office and their official contractor said, these people have not moved. We don't have change of address forms from these people. We don't know where they got this list. And it is against the law, Tom, not to check with the post office when you're removing people for changing uh, their, supposedly changing their address. So they broke the law. So do you think that they got these these names? You think they got these names from Interstate Crosscheck? Well, we know, as you know, I also already want a lawsuit against the Secretary of State of Georgia for because I'm open up their files with their secret communications with Chris Kobach of Kansas about crosscheck. I have no doubt that the crosscheck plays some, and Chris Kobach has some ill influence here. But what we do know is that they used an unlicensed, illegal fly-by-night operator instead of what the law requires. And guess what? They didn't think we could catch them. We had notified them of this error back in September. Then we sent them a legal letter three months ago. And they said, ha-ha, we have 90 days under the National Voter Registration Act to respond to your complaint. Well, they didn't figure mm-hmm. on a runoff. Today is the 91st day since they got legal notice, and you've got the top voting rights lawyers in the nation, Barbara Arnwine of Columbia University, Law School, C.K. Hofler, who's, who's the uh, head of the National Bar Association, and of course, uh, Black Voters Matter with all these organizations. So using the Palace Investigative Fund material, we held a press conference. We sued the state and said, put these people back on right now through injunctive relief before this election. So they just, you know, they never figured that, that they thought they'd get away with it because they had the 90 days and it went past November 3rd. Well, guess what, man? Now your U.S. Senate seats are on the line and we're not going to let you steal it. That is great. How, what judges this go before? How do you expect this to play out, Greg? Well, we're going before Federal Judge Jones. I mean, he is a, an, an Obama appointee and he's known as a very good judge. So we are hoping for some very... Uh, positive results. I mean, obviously, we went in, uh, according to the lawyers, I'm not a lawyer. They say it's one of the most solid, well-backed lawsuits that they've seen in a long time, that we should win this one. But, you know, there's a lot of politics here. And by the way, you know, we are suing this guy, Raffensperger, who's become a hero because he supposedly blocked Trump. He's he's threw Trump under the bus because he's trying to save those Senate seats. But one thing I would note, and this is really important to me, Tom, People on his staff, and he himself, have received threats, death threats, uh, by the right wing who want him to fix the election for Trump. And he did his best, by the way. He did his best. Those 198,000 people were not allowed to vote. So they try to steal Georgia, but they can't steal all the votes. But for God's sake, they are using violence to enforce their fantasies. 
We are using the law to enforce the facts. That's a difference. Very, very well said. Well, Greg, keep us up to date. The last question with regard to that lawsuit, is it possible, let's say that uh, Judge Jones, did you say? Let's say that Judge Jones says, okay, this is it. You got to put those names back on the voter rolls because obviously that uh, almost 200,000 people still live in Georgia and never moved and you illegally removed them from the rolls. So so Georgia then responds by saying, Okay, thank you very much, Judge uh, Jones. You're just a district court uh, judge. We're going to take it to the circuit court, to the appeals court, which is going to take another three or four months. And then the appeals court says, well, you know, we're going to, and, and boom, you know, we're way past the election. What, is that possible? Well, that's why we have six of the toughest, best uh, voting rights lawyers in America on this case. Yeah, it's pretty bad. If this goes to the Supremes, you know, I, I fear for our democracy and I fear for whether the voters will choose this Senate. Yeah, there's no question. Our car- courts are turning hard right, and I hope the law doesn't get left behind. We have a very straightforward law. They used the wrong list. It was an illegal list. I mean, how straightforward is that, Tom? But, yeah. you know, I can't. Well, stop you, them you've, from, you've got uh, the Supreme Court problems. case, though, Greg. You've got the Supreme Court case, you know, from Ohio. What was it? Husted v. somebody. Yes. You know, he was the Secretary of State. And in that case, the, the Supreme Court, if I'm remembering correctly, basically ruled that the Constitution gives states the absolute right to determine who is and isn't an eligible voter and therefore allowed caging to go on in Ohio. Well, there are two little exceptions to, to that Supreme Court ruling. One, you have okay. to say that you have accurate information, and we've proved that they're inaccurate. You also, if you're going to play that game, and I don't, we're, we are not happy about that court ruling at all, but one thing that's clear from the law, if you're going to remove people for moving, you have to use post offices licensed list. They didn't. I don't know where they got this cockamamie list, but included all these people that I met who never moved, who are still there in Georgia, who are still there in Atlanta. So under the law, you must use that list. So we got them like dead to rights. And uh, I just don't see how they can wiggle out of this one. But, you know, there's a lot of wiggling that's going on in America today in courtrooms, unfortunately. Yeah. Any feedback from any of those 197,000 people about what happened when they tried to vote in November? Yeah, well, some people get provisional ballots, and they feel, well, it's okay, I I was able to vote, except if you're not on the voter rolls, even if you're wrongly removed, they throw away the provisional ballot. So I want everyone to check their registration. You know anyone in Georgia, tell them to check it right now. You can go to SaveMyVote2020.org, SaveMyVote2020.org, see if you've been purged. But it also has a re-registration link. You can do that through December 7th. I hope our lawyers can save your vote, but you save your vote. And that's what we're trying to get across. As much as the legal action, your personal action is required. Please, everyone you know in Georgia, tell them to check their registration now. Very few people know that they've been removed from the voter rolls. Don't wait four hours and end up in tears. One of America's premier investigative journalists, Greg Palace. GregPalace.com, his website, his latest book, How Trump Stole 2020. Greg, thanks a lot. Great talking with you. You got it, Tom. Thank you. So in election news, the Supreme Court of the state of Wisconsin 
was the final appeal for Donald Trump in his efforts to overturn or even just recount or re-recount the Wisconsin vote and the state Supreme Court, which is it's got a fair number of conservatives on it. I know there was one big swing vote, and I don't I don't recall, frankly, whether it's you know one vote, whether they have a one seat majority by conservatives or a one seat majority by liberals or if it's tied or whatever. But, it, you know, it's it, it, this court has been doing the bidding, the dancing to the tune of, of uh, Charles Koch and, and Scott Walker for years. And Trump brought his crazy ass schemes to this court. I don't know if you saw any clips of that hearing that they had where where this uh, drunken woman was just going on and on about how there's more voters than there are registered voters. There's more about, you know, which is just all lies. I mean, the, the source, actually, of some of those lies was a tweet that Trump retweeted a couple of days ago where he pointed out that, you know, there were a certain number of people who showed up to vote and then there were a certain number of tabulated votes. So let's say 10,000 people showed up to vote, but there were 25,000 votes. What's wrong with this picture? It was basically his tweet. Well, it turns out that the 10,000 people who showed up to vote was in the primary and the 25,000 people who actually voted was in the general election. You know, it's comparing apples and oranges and saying, why aren't they the same? And this woman was going on and on about that. So, so anyhow, the Supreme Court in Wisconsin has said, screw it. We're not going to do it. You know, it's crazy. Meanwhile, down in Georgia, Brian Kemp and Brad Raffsenperger, while they're explicitly saying this last election, we did it and it's good and everything's fine and there's no fraud and everything's solid. Now they're saying, you know, uh, that stuff that Donald Trump talks about with the uh, mail-in ballots we need to nail that down. Now that most liberals, most Democrats, and a lot of black people are voting with mail-in ballots, we've got to figure out a way to cut the number of those mail-in ballots that actually get counted. This is going to be the new frontier in Republican voter suppression, because the only way Republicans can hold on to power in at least a half a dozen states, maybe more like a dozen, is by suppressing the vote of young people, of people who live in cities, of black people, of Hispanics, of Asians, and of people over 65. Oh, your driver's license has expired. I'm sorry, you can't vote. Who might want to vote to protect their Medicare and Social Security? So get ready, and I'm sure we'll be hearing from Greg Pallast on this in the coming weeks, that uh, you know this is their latest scheme, and it's just, just nuts. Meanwhile, there's a report that Donald Trump came into a, this was a, a meeting with Mitch McConnell and Todd Young. Todd Young's the senator from Indiana. He's not a very high profile guy. Most people have never heard of him, but he's the Republican senator from Indiana. Uh, he was in a meeting with uh, the Republican senator from Kentucky and the, and the Senate Majority Leader, Mitch McConnell. And they were talking about, you know, normal stuff or whatever they were talking about. And all of a sudden, Trump says, we need to support Marjorie Taylor Greene. Marjorie Taylor Greene is the person who was just elected to the House of Representatives who's a big believer in one of the most whack job conspiracy theories out there that Democrats want the blood of children for their matzah or whatever it may be. I mean, it's, it's a variation on the old blood libel, the anti-Semitic hate meme that was first promoted by the Czar's security service in 1910 and then was picked up by Hitler and promoted. You know, it's back only instead of Jews being the evil people, it's now Democrats. Except that they keep referring to George Soros, who is, you know, in right wing world, just a stand in for Jews. 
But anyhow, they're having this meeting in the White House and Trump starts going off on Marjorie Taylor Greene and these very good people. She said, uh, these are people who basically believe in good government. She, he's talking about the followers of this whack job conspiracy theory. He says, these are people who basically believe in good government. And then the report in today's Washington Post says the room was silent again before Mark Meadows, the White House chief of staff, leaned forward to say, I've never heard it described that way. Right. These people believe that uh, Robert Mueller and John Kennedy Jr., who they think is still alive, are secretly planning a martial law operation called the Storm that is going to take down those Democrats who are drinking the blood of children. Honest to God. And Marjorie Taylor Greene will be in Congress. She'll be sworn in on, in the first week of January. And Trump is like all over it. He's figured out his base. I mean, anybody who is gullible enough to believe these kinds of conspiracy theories is gullible enough to send Donald Trump 50 bucks a month. Or in the case of the new fundraisers where they pre-check the box, 50 bucks a week. I mean, Trump just raised $170 million after losing the election. So now when he embraces conspiracy theorists, I mean, he's already got the, the people who believe the, the, the earth is flat and only 6,000 years old, right? The religious fundamentalists. He, he's got the people who think that police should be making decisions about whether women have abortions or access to birth control or whether their miscarriages were intentional or not. This was Mike Pence's big thing when he was governor of Indiana, that every woman should record their periods. And if your period is late, you should report yourself to the police so that you can be observed to make sure you don't do anything that might put that child, in quotes, at risk. And now this, this whole drinking the blood of children stuff and the storm and the secret stuff, all this. Thing. If people are gullible enough to believe that, they are the perfect target for Trump's next scam. I mean, he used to just prey on people who wanted to have, you know, a better job, you know, or uh, figure out how to make a living with real estate. Now he's got a whole new band of suckers. Listening to the Tom Hartman program. You think these people are going to wake up? Or maybe a better question. What will it take for them to wake up? Quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR, all into one platform and one source of truth. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required. It's accessible from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. You improve efficiency by bringing all your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math. See how you'll profit with NetSuite. By popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash Hartman with two N's. netsuite.com slash Hartman. That's netsuite.com slash Hartman. 
Worried about letting someone else pick out the perfect avocado for your perfect impress them on the third date guacamole? Well, good thing Instacart shoppers are as picky as you are. They find ripe avocados like it's their guac on the line. They are milk expiration date detectives. They bag eggs like the 12 precious pieces of cargo they are. So let Instacart shoppers overthink your groceries so that you can overthink what you'll wear on that third date. Download the Instacart app today to get free delivery on your first three orders while supplies last. Minimum $10 per order. Additional terms apply. Today, we're reading about Thunderdome politics, an uncivil war taking back our democracy in an age of Trumpian disinformation and Thunderdome politics by Greg Sargent, the Washington Post columnist. This is from his chapter on voter suppression. It's page 37. Republicans and Democrats inhabit different political realities, as mentioned in a previous chapter. But there are certain facts about our politics that are just objectively true. One of them is this. Generally speaking, efforts to make it harder to vote are almost always pushed by Republicans. You cannot understand what is happening in American politics right now without recognizing this stark and very fundamental difference between the two major political parties. During this decade, procedural hurdles were put into place in around 20 states that in some manner or other have made it harder to vote or to register to vote or have undone previous efforts to make voting or registering easier or have otherwise threatened serious disenfranchisement. Most of them were the creation of Republican lawmakers and officials. The difference in the two parties' national platforms for 2016 tells the story. The GOP platform champions additional hurdles that are absurdly disproportionate to the phantom abuse it alleges, while the Democratic platform champions multiple specific ways to make it easier to vote, not harder. The most common and controversial of methods used by Republicans to suppress Democratic turnout is the requirement that would-be voters present identification at the polls. The game here tends to turn on requiring forms of ID that some groups are less likely to have, making participation harder for them. Other restrictions include techniques like cutting back on early voting and making it harder to register, both of which have, in recent years, been instituted in multiple states. Republicans who have passed laws making it harder to vote have tended to claim such measures are necessary to protect against, quote, voter fraud. We'll look at this in more detail below, but for now... Note that most of the states that have passed such measures did so while under Republican control. As New York University political scientist Samuel Isikoff has memorably put it, the single predictor necessary to determine whether a state will impose voter access restrictions is whether Republicans control the ballot access process. Scholars trace the modern era of warfare over election rules to the intensely contested presidential election of 2000 in which a divided Supreme Court halted the recount in Florida, throwing the presidency to George W. Bush. The closeness and partisan acrimony of that contest, combined with the intense national focus on election rules that accompanied the court battle over it, helped persuade both parties to invest much more attention and energy on those rules. As a result, both the implementation of measures restricting the ballot and the legal battles over them have intensified in recent years. A brief glance at the surprising history of voter ID laws begins to tell the story of this tightening. In the 1970s, several states implemented voter ID measures, but all of them provided for ways that voters without the proper ID could cast a ballot. By 2000, there were 14 such laws, and they had been implemented by politicians in both parties. But by the mid-2000s, amid rising post-2000 acrimony, 
a handful of red states began implementing voter ID laws that the nonpartisan National Conference of State Legislatures described as, quote, strict, meaning that they make it easy to disqualify those who don't pass muster. After one of those laws in Indiana was challenged and then upheld in 2008 by the Supreme Court, an escalation began that gained momentum in the Obama era. From 2010 onward, the adoption of voter ID laws in general and of strict ones in particular accelerated. Though a handful were blocked in the courts, as of this writing, a total of 34 states have voter ID laws in effect, 24 that are deemed non-strict and 10 that are deemed strict. The strict ones are in red states or in swing states where they were implemented by Republicans. The story is very similar if you evaluate the state's voting rules in a broader way by including not just voter ID measures, but also cutbacks to early voting and restrictions on registration. Here the trend is just as pronounced. After the 2010 elections, the Brennan Center for Justice documented a sharp rise in efforts to pass such measures in the state legislatures across the country. Not all these efforts bore fruit, but many did. By the time voting took place in Election Day 2016, some 14 states had these new restrictions in place for the first time in a presidential election. This narrative contains some important truths. Some of the forms that these restrictions on voting access have taken in recent years are diabolically obvious in their efforts to keep constituencies supportive of Democrats from voting. Still others boast the distinction of being more insidiously designed and thus less obvious in their intentions. The book is An Uncivil War by Greg Sargent of The Washington Post. Welcome back. Tom Hartman here with you. And Fox News, this is just amazing. Ainsley Earhart on Fox News. I've heard it time and time again, she says. If it's not fair, if mail-in ballots are not reformed, if we use them in the future, then a Republican president will probably never happen again. You get this? They're declaring war on voting. Voting by mail is probably the single most secure way of voting or it's maybe you know next to walking a paper ballot in person in and putting it in the box but there's a paper trail there's a there's i mean it's just it's so so safe so secure so without fraud uh, you know the biggest challenge right now is that because we don't have a right to vote uh, literally millions of votes got thrown out in this last election in the 2020 election because, by and large, Republican poll watchers were in, inserted into Democratic districts, uh, largely Democratic precincts, and uh, they argued that the signatures didn't match the signature card and challenged the, you know, challenged the ballots before they were even counted. And that happened you know, literally millions of times all across the United States with this election. That's the biggest problem with it. And, uh, you know, again, in Oregon here, the elections are very well run, and we don't I mean, obviously, you have to sign the outside, but they're, they're not intentionally looking to disenfranchise mail-in voters like, you know, they might do in Florida or Georgia or someplace else like that. Um, it's just remarkable stuff. And welcome back. Joan in Rochester, Minnesota. Hey, Joan, what's on your mind? Well, I was thinking about Georgia, and I was thinking that the speech that Donald is giving out or the talk he's giving about the Republicans not voting is a ploy to, to make the 
the uh, Democrats complacent with going out and voting because they think their Republicans are not going to vote. And that's a mis-message, and I hope the Democrats from the youngest to the oldest get out as hard as they can and vote that day. And if somebody tries to suppress their vote at the, at the voting booths, that they stand up for themselves and find somebody that will help them get through that line because it's just a ploy for people not to think that they can go out and vote because the Republicans aren't voting. It's just a misnomer, and it would cause a big, big mess in Georgia. Listen to the gal, what's her name? Uh, Stacy, Stacy Abrams, get out, you Democrats, from young to old, and vote for your Democratic people on yeah. Election Day. Thank you. I, I, the thing I find, thank you, Joan. The thing I find most amazing about this is that Donald Trump is running around going, these elections are all fraudulent. Uh, a couple of days ago, a, uh, I don't recall whether it was Raffson Perger or uh, some, other Demo- some other Republican state official in Georgia was trying to address a group of voters. And they were like, why should we vote? The election's rigged. Trump told us it's rigged. I'm not going to vote. You know, it's, it's already decided, et cetera. And he was like, no, no, they're not rigged. They're not rigged. And so now Trump is going to come down and try to get Republicans to get out there and vote for Kelly Loeffler and David Perdue, two of the apparently most criminal members, if it's a crime to do insider trading and get rich on, a, on, a, on an epidemic while people around you are dying two of the most criminal members of the Senate. He's going to come down and make a pitch for them. And the Republicans are just hysterical about this. They're very, very worried that in the middle of his, oh, David Perdue's a wonderful guy and I need Kelly Loeffler so we can continue passing right-wing crank stuff through the Senate, that in the middle of that, he might say, oh, and by the way, uh, Georgia rigged the election and I hate uh, Brian Kemp because he's already said those things, right? And if it's going to kill Republican turnout and you know it's kind of shooting yourself in the foot, and so it's getting real interesting, Joan. I mean, you've got, on the one hand, Georgia Republican officials saying, everything's fine, just vote, don't worry. Dominion Systems, our voting machines, they're good. You know, everything's been looked at, it's solid. And on the other hand, you've got Trump saying the election was rigged and there's millions of votes that shouldn't have been counted. And uh, don't even bother. And uh, it's, it's, it's getting very strange. And how they're going to square that circle looks to me like it's going to be this strategy that, that Brian Kemp and, and Brad Raffsenperger, the uh, Secretary of State, just rolled out, which is that we're going to start, they're going to start looking very carefully at the signature on the outside of the envelope and compar- comparing it with the card that people signed when they first registered to vote. And right now, the you know, if there's... Yeah, you can have a few differences, but, you know, if it looks pretty much the same, then they count the vote. Well, they're going to say it's got to be exactly the same. You know where he crossed the T? It only went three quarters of an inch, or it went three quarters of the inch on the original. It only went a half inch on this one. So we're going to throw this vote out because it came from Atlanta. That's what's coming. Jeff in Portland, Oregon. Hey, Jeff, what's on your mind today? I do want to disagree with you, but before I get to that, I just want to amplify what you said 
end the show yesterday when you agreed with the conservative caller about getting rid of the voting machines. You know, Elections Canada, the government agency that runs our elections, they put out a statement last month saying they have never in their history used voting machines. They've always used hand-marked paper ballots. And as you've said many times, Tom, we're the only modern democracy that uses these machines. So, yeah, let's get rid of them. I just wanted to put a punctuation. And Ireland tried them, and their legislature passed a law requiring that they not be, when they pulled them out of service, they tried them for one election and said, whoa, not going to do that again. And afterwards, they ordered the whatever division of government had the machines to sell them as scrap metal or as scrap, not as voting machines, so that no other country would end up with these horrible things. Yes. Yeah. Whether Moscow Mitch will sign off on getting rid of them is another story. But, you know, that's another reason we need the Georgia Senate seats. Anyway, Tom, my disagreement, if personnel is policy, and as progressives, we recognize that reality is demanding major policy shifts toward Medicare for All, Green New Deal, and scaling down the war machine, why should we keep quiet concerning these cabinet picks? You know, Rahm Emanuel, and I'd refer everyone to a piece on Common Dreams Tuesday as to how toxic to progressives he would be in a Biden administration. And then conversely, Tom... But he hasn't been appointed to anything. Well, he's been talked about. And, and I'm sure I, he and, won't be. Well, and that is because we're making some noise, hopefully. And Julian Brave Noise Kid... No, I think, uh, I think it's because Kamala Harris is genuinely progressive and the people that she's bringing along with her, you know, particularly Kareem Jean-Pierre, are very progressive. And well, I think that this well, administration another piece is... On, I'm willing to cut there's some another, slack. There's another piece on Common Dreams today, though, talking about Flournoy, what a war hawk she is being considered as Secretary of Defense. You know, Medea Benjamin's against her, Daniel Ellsberg, and many other peace groups are against her. And then, But on the other hand, Julian Brave Noisecat gave all the great reasons for us to advocate for Deb Holland as our next Secretary of the Interior. So, you know, either mm-hmm. way, with all due respect, Tom, as progressives, the voices of reason, compassion, and vision, why should we be silent in this important process? Flournoy concerns me, too, although she has not been appointed. I think she's a front runner, according to the article. Yes. Okay. Number one, I'm not sure how to lobby the transition team. You know, they don't have a a public phone number. I mean, you've got uh, media. But number two, can you think of any defense secretary in our lifetimes that you thought should have had that job? <laughs> Not necessarily, and yeah, and you know, it's they're all like going to chief probably of police. Have... I mean, occasionally you get a good person. But <laughs> what about uh, Pete Buttigieg? What about Pete Buttigieg as uh, secretary or, or um, Tulsi Gabbard? Uh, Tulsi is a little too flaky for me, but Pete Buttigieg yeah. would be, I think, brilliant as a defense secretary or a veterans affairs secretary. Either one, he's a good guy. Jeff, thank you. I don't think that we fundamentally disagree on this. This is the Tom Hartman Program. Today's book in our book club is The Hidden History of the War on Voting, Who Stole Your Vote and How to Get It Back, by this guy, Tom Hartman. Uh, This is from Chapter 1, or from the introduction, actually. In 2016, 6% of Americans who were eligible to vote nominated Donald Trump as the GOP's presidential candidate. It was 8% for Hillary Clinton on the Democratic side. Trump went on to be elected president by 26% of eligible voters. The modern American oligarchs have largely stayed in power using three simple elements. Explicit overt racism, massive disinformation campaigns, and voter suppression. No ideas, 
No push for better schools, hospitals, airports, roads, or bridges, or reform of our health, energy, or financial systems. No promise of more and better jobs. None of these staples of past presidential campaigns can be found in pretty much any Republican advertising today. Instead, the public Republican message is all about race, or the subset of race, religion. Muslim stands in for brown Arab in GOP speak, and immigration, a.k.a. brown people from south of our border, and socialism. Meanwhile, Republican secretaries of state across the nation are vigorously purging voters from the rolls. Over 17 million, more than 10% of America's active voters, in just the 2016-2018 period, according to NBC News. After the five Republican appointees on the U.S. Supreme Court gutted the Voting Rights Act in 2013, 14 GOP-controlled states moved within a year, some within days, to restrict access to the vote, particularly for communities of color, students, and retired people. In North Carolina, for example, 158 polling places were permanently closed in the 40 counties with the most African-American voters just before the 2016 election, leading to a 16% decline in African-American early voting in that state. An MIT study found that nationwide, Hispanic voters wait 150% longer in line than white voters, and black voters can expect to wait 200% longer in line to vote. In Indiana, then-Governor Mike Pence's new rigorous voter ID law caused an 11.5% drop in African-American voting. Students are suing for their right to vote, and retired people who no longer drive but care passionately about their Social Security and Medicare are being turned away at the polls by the hundreds of thousands because their driver's licenses have expired. The obvious failure of 40-plus years of Reaganomics and GOP policies to maintain a functional middle class in America has been a problem for the modern GOP. In 1974, for example, the GOP had outright control of only seven states. The message, elect us and we'll help the rich people, just didn't generally resonate with American voters. It's the reason why, outside of the fluke elections of 46 and 52, Democrats controlled the House of Representatives outright for three generations, from 1933 to 1996, and controlled the Senate for most of that time. Desperate to win the presidency for the GOP in 1968, Richard Nixon went so far as to commit treason by torpedoing a peace deal with President Lyndon Johnson that President Lyndon Johnson had worked out with the North and South Vietnamese. According to Abul Hassan Bani Sadr, then president of Iran, Ronald Reagan did the same thing by cutting a deal with Iran whereby they would hold on to the U.S. embassy hostages until after the 1980 presidential election, torpedoing Jimmy Carter's chances of re-election. But in 2000, the GOP changed tactics. After Reagan was almost busted for his part in Iran-Contra, he testified that he had forgotten about details of the program more than 80 times his growing Alzheimer's spared him an indictment. They realized that getting busted for treason wasn't worth the risk. They needed a plan B. And it was deliciously simple. If most voters don't like what you're selling, then just don't let them vote. Paul Weyrich promoted this idea back in 1980 when he was campaigning for Reagan after co-founding the Heritage Foundation. And indeed, many Republican luminaries, such as William Rehnquist, who went from serving the GOP by standing in polling places and intimidating Hispanic and Native American voters in the 1960s to becoming Chief Justice of the Supreme Court, rose up through the ranks by participating in Republican-run voter intimidation schemes. Voter suppression became the foundational go-to tactic for the GOP in 2000. Although the GOP attacked Democratic presidential nominee Al Gore with smear and innuendo, ridiculing him for helping write the legislation that created the modern Internet, for example. 
The main thing that got George W. Bush into the White House was voter suppression. His brother, Florida Governor Jeb Bush, and Bush's Secretary of State, Catherine Harris, threw somewhere between 20,000 and 90,000 African-American voters off the rolls. They were able to get the vote close enough that five Republican appointees to the Supreme Court functionally awarded Bush the presidency. The BBC covered this in 2001 in two major investigative reports that were seen all over the world, except on any American media. By 2016, the Republican Party had fine-tuned its voter suppression and intimidation systems to the point that they ran like well-oiled machines in nearly 30 states. Between the 2012 and 2016 presidential elections, for example, Ohio had purged more than 2 million voters from its rolls, the vast majority, more than 2 to 1, in heavily African-American and Hispanic counties. The five Republican appointees on the Supreme Court ruled in 2017 that they could keep it up, and other states have since adopted their new tactic of caging voters. The book, The Hidden History of the War on Voting, by me. Welcome back. Jerry in Chester, Virginia. Hey, Jerry, what's on your mind? Hey, Tom, how's it going? I love the show. Um, I was just thinking, if we don't get those two Democratic senators in Georgia, if we don't win that, I mean, I think Biden's just going to be a lame duck president for four years. And I'm not even sure that the Democrats could keep the House in, when is it, in two years when Mm -hmm. they come up for votes? So I think... (laughs) If we don't get those two senators elected and make Kamala Harris the president of the Senate so we can get stuff done, I don't know what's going to happen to this country, to tell you the truth. What do you think? You know, Jerry, I share your concerns and, and your analysis of the importance of this election in Georgia. I totally get it, and I totally agree with you. That said, if either Purdue or Loeffler beat either Warnock or Ossoff in that race, and therefore Mitch McConnell continues to be the Senate Majority Leader, A, there might be a plan B with regard to Kamala Harris being the president of the Senate to get things done. And more and more voices of uh, constitutional scholars are weighing in saying, wait a minute, if she's the president of the Senate, she can simply go in and she can call on any senator to call a vote for any piece of legislation, which is the power that McConnell has used up to this point is refusing to allow hearings to be held for everybody from Supreme Court nominees on down, refusing to allow bills to come to the floor, refusing to allow committees to report out to the floor. If Kamala Harris is president of the Senate, both tradition and I believe the law say that she can force those things. She can force his hand. And the question is, is she going to be willing and will Biden support her in being willing to have the moral fortitude and courage to take this on, even if it gets bumped up to the Supreme Court? And that's a question I don't know the answer to. And we'll just have to see how it plays out. I mean, I thought Obama should have gone after Mitch McConnell yeah. with both. I mean, he, he could have put Joe Biden in front of the Senate and said, OK, I'm taking over here, in my opinion. And he never did, although that was not a topic of serious discussion back then because Obama wasn't making noise about Merrick Garland every day like a Republican would have done. But I get yeah. it. I totally get it. Yeah. Thanks because a lot. Uh, thanks a lot for the. She don't want to, you know, well. She wants to run in 2024, too, so she can't, she can't come off as being the angry black woman. You know what I mean? Screaming in the she Senate. She being who? 
Oh, Kamala Harris. Say again? Yeah. Oh, I, 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 you know, I don't think I don't think people have to worry. I, frankly, I don't think she has to worry about that label any longer. That's a, just an old Republican trope, I, I think. Jerry, thank you for the call. Pam in Mount Airy, Maryland, it says you disagree with me. So you go to the front of the line. What's up, Pam? We've got okay. about two minutes here. Well, thank you. I'll try to be quick. I believe that the states need to say we need to go into investigation because there's been so many signed affidavits. There's a pile of proof, but the only way that we can see that we have a fair election, regardless of which side gets it, I want to know that the voting is pure and clean, and I think we need to go investigate, take the time to do it, so we don't have this You realize that these swing states have already done that. They've recounted every single vote. They've looked at every single ballot. They've looked at the results of every single voting machine. And Republican secretaries of states and governors have come out and said, we got the numbers right. Donald Trump lost. No, I don't believe that's that's not true. If that you is go the truth. Over the same, if you go over the, use the same machines, if you use the same machines and you go do the the system the same way that you did before, you're still going to have machines that are turning result. up votes that are coming in from outside of our country. And also... Uh, no, these machines are not connected to the Internet, generally speaking. But Pam, I share your skepticism about voting machines. I think we should do away with them. Here in Oregon, where I live, I realize you're in Maryland. I'm in Oregon. Right, uh, right. About, um, about four, five, six weeks before the election, I get my ballot in the mail along with a booklet that has all the candidates and all the judges and all the ballot measures. And Louise and I sit down at the kitchen table and we put out, fill out our ballots. And if there's anybody we don't know, we Google them. And, and, and we are become informed voters this way. We lick the stamp, walk that, it out to the front you, of the street. I feel street that as an American, I think that my uncles who died, some of them got harmed. I had my aunt's brother has fought for freedom in this country. He was in prison camp, a POW throughout most of the entire Vietnam War. It's one of the last What's ones point, that Pam? was released. And I'm like, I feel like we're losing the America. There's things that are being lied about. There are things that are being covered up. And nobody wants to talk about it. And I believe it's big money. And I do believe that there is China is ruling and big money is ruling and they're trying to cut us off and we don't have you know, freedom. we've been Pam, our freedoms have been ridden over, right. over again here and big, I don't, big money is screwing us I'm with you and let's get rid of voting machines let's do that let's have everybody in the country vote on paper by mail so that we can guarantee that every vote so we can audit every vote we can look at every vote I'm with you Pam Pam, thank you for the call. I mean, I'm not down with Donald Trump one, but, you know, yeah, if you've got skepticism about the system and there's another system that is easily audited, why not do that? We, 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 for 20 years, we've been doing it in Oregon. In all that time, we've had like 12 cases of people who shouldn't have voted. Washington State, uh, there's five states that do it. Anyhow, have a great afternoon. Get out there, get active, tag your in and all that kind of thing. Be good to yourself and the people around you. You've been listening to Tom Hartman. For audio and video archives, visit TomHartman.com.